see you tonight. Glad you're here. Welcome. Take a few moments and pray and then we'll get started with the Bible study. Father, thanks for uh, just a time, a place. We thank you for uh, just this opportunity to meet together and with you. And we ask that you would lead us and guide us tonight and that we would be responsive to you. I pray your Holy Spirit to empower our time and to anoint our time. I pray, God, that the teaching would be anointed. I pray that we would be anointed as listeners to hear what you're saying and to really receive it, take it in, and have it applied to our hearts, have it applied to our lives. Uh, I ask you, God, that uh, things that might be difficult to understand, you'd make easy. Things that might be difficult to apply, that you would... Really put them right onto our heart and into our spirit. For God, tonight I just pray that uh, there'd be change. I pray that we'd be challenged. I ask God in a good way uh, we would encounter you. We give you thanks for your presence. We give you thanks for your work. We give you thanks for all that you do. I ask God that uh, you have your way in us. I pray that this would be a time where you move and that we respond to your move. We give you thanks and we give you praise tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S P E A K P I P E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle. And you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If you have your Bibles, uh, we open up to... Book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. We've been getting some good feedback from some of the people that have been listening to Bible study. I listened to Bible study over in Senegal, and I've gotten a couple of emails on some of the Bible studies that we've recently had. The last one, uh, there was part of the email that I'll share with you that was kind of funny to me where, uh, and Cam, maybe this is for you, they said it was like I was sitting in their living room talking to them. Yeah, so nice job, Mr. Engineer. Yes, yes, appreciate that. Yes. Hebrews chapter 5, I need a volunteer to read verse 8. Hebrews 5, 8. Even though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became a servant. 
salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. All right, thanks for reading that. Uh, in Hebrews 5.8 we see, and I, I want to restate something that I've said a few times over the past few months. And I want to say it again because I want you to think about this as we're looking over this passage. It's this statement. Suffering is from my Father for my good. Suffering is from my Father for my good. Uh, as we begin to reframe uh, some of our ideas about suffering and we begin to reframe some of the ways that we choose to see suffering in our lives and we see the effects of suffering in our lives. Now, the Bible talks in a number of places about the advantages of, it, of suffering. It talks about the, the purposes of suffering and how God uses suffering in our lives to really mold us and make us and mature us, uh, that we become the people that he desires for us to be. It's for our good. And I know that's hard in the moment to see that. And so that's why I, I keep speaking it because I'm going to catch you when you're not suffering eventually. <laughs> and, and you can maybe get this, maybe get this into you somehow where before you go into a situation where you're suffering, you can really think this through and, and have this just as a part of your spirit in your, in your spirit in your life that suffering is for my good. It's for my father. And, and to allow for that. And to and to really begin to embrace what God has for us through that, uh, instead of running away from it, or avoiding it, or trying to pretend it's not there, or trying to whatever it is we try to do to get away from suffering, but to really take hold of those moments and see them as times that our Father uses in our life for our good, and and to be able to embrace that even when it's hard or even when things aren't going our way. And so if you're suffering right now, I know you probably can't hear me, and so I understand that, but I'll keep saying it, and eventually, like I said, I'll catch you when you're not suffering. And then at that point, in that moment, you can really think about this and, and really allow for looking back and seeing, okay, times that I've suffered in my life, what's happened? What's been the result? And I don't mean how you felt in the moment, but what was the longer-term result of that? And how did you grow? How did you mature? How did you become something more through that? And to be able to just objectively look back and see those kind of moments and see those kind of times and, and think about it and really take hold of some of that truth about this is God, this is the Father, and He's growing me up. So in this verse... Hebrews 5, 8, uh, it, it speaks of this. And, and this was something that stood out to me as I was reading through the book of Hebrews, is that this verse speaks, and it speaks to a couple of different things. One thing it speaks to is a particular Christology or a particular study of Jesus and a way of understanding Jesus. And I think it's an important way of understanding Jesus because it tells us who he is to us. It tells us who he became and why. And, and it begins to describe and to give us a better understanding of Jesus. And, for example, why he is someone that we pray to and who understands us. Why he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Why he could be tempted in point, all points like we are yet without sin. And all of those kind of moments in the Bible 
the New Testament where it talks about Jesus as being one of us and us being one with him and, and of him being the firstborn among many brethren and what that means. And the idea of him really, really, and I mean really deep down understanding us, really getting us and why that makes sense. Why it makes sense that he's the mediator between us and the Father. Why it makes sense that he's our intercessor. He's the one praying for us. Why it makes sense that it's by him and through him that we can boldly approach the throne of grace to find mercy and grace for help in our time of need. So all those things have to make sense somehow. There has to be some kinship with Jesus for that to even make sense, for him to be our example, for, you know, for instance. That you can say, well, Jesus is our example. Okay, I believe that. The early church were known as, after a certain point, they were known as Christians or like Christ. Well, how are we like Christ if we don't have some kind of a Christology that allows for that and, and, and gives us that opportunity to be like him by understanding, well, how was he the way he was? How did he do the things that he did? How was it that he walked the earth and he went about doing good and healing people and all the things that he did? Well, there has to be some attainable understanding of that as humans or we never have any hope of being like him. If our theology, if our Christology stops at, well, Jesus is the Son of God. Well, I believe that. That in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that's Jesus. I believe that. But there had to come a transition at some point, and this is where I'm getting at, where he becomes like us. And I don't mean kind of half like us, but really like us. Because popular theology, popular Christology says, well, he looked like us and he acted like us, but his God stuff was just veiled. In other words, it was hidden. And so what that implies in this popular Christology is that he really wasn't like us. But I believe he was. Or else none of it makes any sense. In other words, even if, even if you believe what I just said, and he veiled all of those God attributes that he had, he still had them. And so if Jesus, if the Bible says, well, Jesus did the works that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't believe that. Why? Because he had all the God attributes. He could have just done it based on his own attributes. He didn't need the Holy Spirit. That statement is ridiculous if that's what you want to believe. And so... In, in the Christology that we have as a church, we believe that there came a point where Jesus emptied himself, and we'll look at this in a few minutes, he emptied himself of those God attributes. What, what do I mean by that? Like his holiness. In other words, if the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, for him to be tempted, he would have to empty himself of that holiness because God can't be tempted with evil. The Bible tells us that. We, we know that to be true. And so one's a liar. If, if he didn't empty himself of his holiness, then he couldn't have been tempted. So whatever that verse says, he was tempted at all points like we are yet without sin, that's a lie. Or he emptied himself of that. What else did he empty himself of? His omnipresence. He was a man. He was a person. He was in one place at one time. He wasn't everywhere all at once. We know that. He went to himself as omniscience. Why do I say that? Well, because he said himself 
that they asked Jesus, like, well, when's, when's this, all this stuff going to happen with the Father and all these plans of the Father are going to take place? And Jesus looked at the person who asked him and said, I don't know. That's not for me to know. Only the Father knows. Well, if you're omniscient, what does that mean? You know how much? Everything. Well, you'd be able to answer that question, right? Yeah. But Jesus said he couldn't answer that question. So he wasn't omniscient. So he emptied himself of that. He willingly emptied himself of those God attributes so that he could be one of us. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the fact that he's a human. And I appreciate the fact that he was tempted in all points like we are. I, I appreciate the fact that, that he, and if you read the Bible, you see this, that he struggled, that he had questions, that he cried out. You read all of these things that took place, very human things that Jesus went through. And I appreciate that because the Bible tells us he's touched by the feelings of our infirmities. In other words, he gets us. He, he knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to have questions. He knows what it is to, to not be sure of something. And, and to me, that's really important. That's really important to me. It doesn't diminish him one bit to me. It doesn't diminish his work one bit. It doesn't diminish anything that he did one bit to me. In fact, it, it, it really takes it and it magnifies it for me. In other words, yeah, who would be willing to do that? Who would be willing to just empty themselves of everything that they had in order to identify with you? I mean, that's powerful to me. And and it makes me just love him even more. He was willing to do that, that he did it. It makes me just respect him even more and want to worship him even more and to love him even more that he did that. You start off in this verse here. It talks about the Son. Uh, at the beginning of this in Hebrews 5, 8, it's the Son, not just the Son, the Son. So in other words, he's being identified here as the Son of God. And, yeah, that's, that's fact. That's fact. Now, again, I don't think when he was going about his earthly ministry, he was going about his earthly work, that he had all the attributes of God, but he's still the Son. He's still the Word. He just emptied himself of stuff. And so it talks about him that way, but I think that's important that we see it talking about him that way because we're recognizing the fact he is who he is. He's not a facsimile. He's not just somebody that is posing as that. He's not somebody that just looks like that or anything else. He is who he says he is. And so you read in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it tells us something. There's a transition that takes place in verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh, or became a human being, yeah, and we saw him, we beheld him. And it's kind of interesting to me, it's like the Word became flesh, and, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, or the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so that describes Jesus precarnate, and then that, that describes what he looks like as a human. And so we have this idea, it's like, okay, well, this is who he is. Right. So all good. And so, this, these verses are beginning to set up something for us. Because as I said before, we have a high priest, this is talking about Jesus here, 
We have a high priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In other words, the Son became a human. Because the high priest is a human. He became a human that understands us, that gets us, that feels with us. You know, Hebrews 4.15 talks about that. It talks about a high priest touched by the feelings of our infirmities. And either that's a lie or it's who he is. And I really believe that's who he is. I really believe that that human, Jesus, can be touched with the feelings of infirmities. Why? Because he went through it himself. He went through it himself and he can feel it. And so you go down from that. So you got the son, not just the son, but the son. But here's the part that this is the important part of this verse. It says this. It says that Jesus, the son, he learned obedience. He learned obedience. God doesn't need to learn anything. The human Jesus learned obedience. And again, I really believe the only way that that makes any sense, the only way I can reconcile that in my mind is that Jesus is the Son, but He emptied Himself of all those attributes that would say He's omniscient, He knows everything. Well, He didn't know obedience, He had to learn it. And He emptied Himself of, of, of the knowledge and He emptied Himself of the things that He had to learn and the things that He had to read and the things that He had to come with because that's the process we go through. He went through the same processes that we go through. He was born of a woman in a, in a manger, in, a, in, a, in a, an animal barn, or wherever you want to describe it as. But he had to be fed, and he had to have his diaper changed, and he had to grow up as a boy, and he had to learn and go through the same processes that we go through to learn. He had to learn language, and he had to learn what it was and, and how to go about life in a culture, and he had to learn what it meant to, to, to be around neighbors and to have neighbors. He probably learned a trade from his father. His father's a carpenter, and so he probably learned a trade. And so he went through these processes that we go through. And you can think of it as school learning. You can say it any way you want. But one of the things that he had to learn along the way, one of the God things he had to learn, is he had to learn obedience. Obedience. And God doesn't, like I said, God needs to learn anything unless He empties Himself out and starts over and becomes like one of us and then you got to learn everything. Like we learn everything. That we, we know we got to learn it. You know, we're, again, I say this all the time and I, and I want you to really think about this. We're not wolves. You, we don't come into the world knowing how to hunt. We don't come into the world knowing how to take care and fend for ourselves right off the bat. We have to be taught. We have to be raised. We have to be poured into. We have to be protected. We have to be taken care of. And eventually there has to be someone that comes along and says, this is how you do this. This is how you do that. This is, this is dangerous. This is good. This tastes good. You can eat that. Don't eat that. Those kind of things. Because, you know, otherwise we don't know. And, and so we don't have those kind of instincts necessarily, say, like a wolf would. We're humans. And so we're taught. So here you have an example of Jesus. And I love this verse because it just says that. It's like Jesus, 
learned obedience. He had to learn obedience. In other words, it wasn't innate. It wasn't something that we just had. It was something he had to learn. Somebody look at Philippians 2. This is the empty out verses. I'm talking about Jesus emptying himself out. The Word emptying himself out. Become a human. These are the empty out verses. Uh, Philippians 2. And I need a volunteer to read verses 6 and 8. 6 through 8. 6, 7, and 8. Philippians 2, 6, 7, and 8. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. All right. In that verse, there's a, there's a portion there where it talks about how, it, and I, I can't remember the exact words in the version that you're using. Uh, in the old version, it says he made himself nothing. That's the old language. And the word that's used there is a Greek word. Uh, it's kenosis is the word. And that word means, just literally translated, just means to empty out. And so that's where the empty out comes from. That's why I keep saying that over and over again. Is that this verse describes that thing which he did by emptying himself out. The more modern translations actually imply that, say that. I think yours kind of said that. That he, he emptied himself out of what? Of all that stuff. Your version said divine privilege. Or, and I would say attributes. But I'm taking a strong stand on that. You know, that version of the Bible you're reading, they're, they're walking a, a tightrope because they don't want to be accused of heresy. I don't care. I've already been accused of heresy, so it's already over for me. But what I'm getting at for you is that you get to, you get to a point where it's like, I'm going to stop explaining away something to satisfy someone's whatever it is, insecurity about what they believe about Jesus. I don't have any insecurity about what I believe about Jesus. I think that that word, and he is the word, transitioned to flesh. He became a human being fully, and he lived out his life as a human being. And then the Bible describes that he transitions back to the word when it's all over again. Because he's pictured in Revelation, and he's coming leading the armies of heaven, and he has written on his thigh the words, the word of God. So he is transitioned back into full deity as he comes back. So I have no problem with that. I have no problem with with the word becomes flesh, becomes the word. I have no problem with that. And, I, and, and the fact that he became flesh, though, is the key factor. Because that's the factor that, that inspires me. That's the factor that gives me hope. That's the factor that tells me that I have a future in this. That I have a stake in this. That I, there is a part of God's plan that He wants to do through me in this. That's the part that's important to me. Right here and right now. Is that He became flesh. And He emptied Himself out. And even though He was a Son, the Son, and He was connected with what proceeds. See, it implies, it implies, through these, this passage here, that the Father heard him not because of where he came from, 
But the father heard him because of his respect for the father. Because of his love for the father. And so, how did, how did the son have this relationship with the father? It was through the decisions that he made while he was on the earth. You can look at that and say, well, he already had a relationship with him. Yeah, but not as a human. How are we going to have a relationship with the father? We didn't proceed from the father. Not really. Well, the same way Jesus did. We're going to love him. Same way Jesus did, we're going to respect him. Same way Jesus did, we're going to show him appropriate worship and appropriate love and appropriate, and I mean this in the best of ways, God ways, fear. In that we respect and we know who he is. And Jesus was heard because of that. And it's not because of privilege that he was heard, because Philippians 2 tells us that he, he left behind the privilege. It wasn't that. It wasn't his sonship that, that did that, that purchased that. And, and, and I want to say that, that him being heard, and I want to say that him being obedient, I want to say that him doing the things and following after the will that the Father had for him, that was not inherent in him. It wasn't. He had to make that decision. He had to make that choice. He had a choice. He chose to obey. He chose to hear what the Father said. He chose to do what the Father told him to do. How do you know that? Well, one verse, I use it all the time. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cries out. He's, he's sweating blood. And he's got what's going on. He's about to go to the cross. He knows he's about to go to the cross. He knows what's about to happen. There's a point in the in that time when he's in the garden. He's got his disciples praying for him, or he thinks, hopes they are, but they're falling asleep on him. Whatever's happening, is happening. But in that, there's a certain point within that whole struggle that we see going on there. Understand it as a struggle because that's what was happening. He cry, he says to the father, "Like I, I pray that this cup would pass from me." In other words, I don't want to go to the cross. That's he said. That's what he said. I don't want to go to the cross. If it be possible, I pray this cup would pass from me. In other words, is there any other way to do this? Any other way? I don't want to do this. I don't blame him one bit. I'd be thinking the same thing. Okay? But then he, he makes a statement, and this is the telling statement. But nevertheless, not my will, Jesus saying this, not my will, but yours be done. What does that tell you about his will? He had his own will. Right, His will was not tied in in the exact same as the Father. He had his own will, just like you have your own will. He made a decision that night to submit his will to the Father's will. That's our example. That's why it makes sense. That's why he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That's why he understands us. That's why he gets us. Because he had to make a choice. And it wasn't just that. I use that as one example. But, I mean, you have to look at his life. And, and if he had to make that choice in that moment, he was making choices in other places too. He was making choices in other decisions that he was making. He was making those kind of choices along the way. Because there may have been times where he wanted to do certain things and he didn't want to do certain things. Times that he could see what was going to happen. Times maybe he didn't. I don't know. 
We know he didn't know one thing. He might not have known other things too. But he made a decision to trust. And he made a decision to follow after the Father's will. And he made a decision that it wasn't his will that was important, but it was what the Father had for him that was important. That was his decision. Well, that's our inspiration for our decision. That he made that decision, and and he made the decision to follow after him, and, and to submit his own will to the Father's will. Well, that was his decision. Well, that's our example. So we have an example. That someone with a will of their own, someone with a will that differed from what the Father wanted for him, submitted that which he wanted to what the Father wanted, even at great cost to him and great suffering that was going to come into his life. He actually made a decision and a choice to suffer. That's hard. But he knew that was the Father's will for his life. And so he wasn't exempted from suffering. Jesus wasn't. In fact, we know that he suffered in his life more than one time. It wasn't just the cross. That was not the only time that he suffered. We know that. And you think about the times in his life that we even have accounts of. uh, Times when uh, he was rejected. Times when people wanted nothing to do with him. Including his own family. You think about his family coming to gather him up because they were telling people that he was out of his mind. And what he was doing as he was teaching, that he was crazy. And his family had come to take him home because they were worried about him, because they just considered him to be insane. And so he had his family that were, they were accusing him of being out of his mind. And that could have been hurtful, right? That's a suffering moment. He's going about the Father's will. And he's going about what he's supposed to be doing. And he's making a conscious choice to go about what the Father had for him to do. Even though his own family thought he was crazy. Now, he could have stepped back and and showed them that he wasn't crazy or whatever. I mean, he could have made different decisions. But he kept going in what the Father had for him. He made the choice. Again and again and again. People rejected him. He still made the choice. Going to do it. I'm going to do it. So in good times he made the choice, bad times he made the choice, whenever, whatever, he was making that choice because that was the Father's will for his life. And so he wasn't exempted from the suffering. Somebody look at Matthew. Matthew 26. I'm not sure which verse this is. Matthew 26, somebody look at verse 39 or verse 34. It's one of those. Our writing is atrocious. Matthew 26, try 39. Verse 39. Or 34. Okay. 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup Yeah, so I was quoting that verse, and and again, you just have to see, and if you read that whole section, you can see that it, this was not just something he just off the, in, in the snap of a finger made a decision about. 
This was something he struggled with, something he was praying with, something that he was really seeking the Father about, something that he had his friends there supposedly praying with him. I mean, this was something that was actually going on in his life, a real decision that needed to be made. And it, he was going to make that decision, whatever it was going to be. And, and these moments took place. So you think about him on the cross crying out. I mean, there's anguish there. You know, he's crying out, even in the moment where he's asking Father, the Father why he's forsaken him. That feeling, that's real. That's real. I mean, he's feeling like the Father had forsaken him on the cross. That's a real emotion. That's a real feeling. That's really a, a human response to feeling alone, isn't it? Feeling that way. Yeah. So the, we have these times, we have these moments. He's looking over Jerusalem and he, he begins to weep. Or he goes to his friends who's in the grave, Lazarus, and he begins to weep. And you see the emotion that takes place there and you see the emotion that, that comes out of him through those things. Real things, real moments, real times, real feelings. But that... That's who he is. He's, and those are suffering moments. And so during the days of Jesus' life on earth, okay, and you can back up one verse, Hebrews 5, 7. And if you look at that verse, if it's during the days of Jesus' life on the earth. Somebody read verse 7. Strong cries and tears. Strong cries and tears. Those are real emotions. And that's how he offered. And that was during the, his life. And again, you can't just put that right at, oh, it's, they're talking about the passion. They're talking about his crucifixion. I, no. It's during the days of his life. It's his life. That's what he experienced. That's what he went through. That was what was going on. And kind of interestingly, it says that he was heard. And, and these verses are super important. Why was he heard? It's answered in that verse. He was heard because of his what? His submission and or obedience. In other words, a decision was made to obey and to submit. Not my will... Yours be done. That's submission. That's obedience. And so he was heard because of his submission, obedience, obedience or attendance to. So he was attentive, either an attendance to what the Father had for him and a compliance with what the Father had. The command of the Father. But that was a decision he made. That was... Something that took place in his heart, his mind, something took place in his spirit, a decision that he made over and over and over and over and over again. Not just once, many times. Not just, just uh, an individual time, but it was a lifestyle of submission and a lifestyle 
of obedience. And man, the Father heard it. The Father heard it. But do you see the humanity in, in Hebrews chapter 5? Do you, are you following me here? Because I, I, there's no way that I understand. And I've heard, I've heard, believe me, I've been trained in a certain Christology. I mean, just hours and hours and hours and hours of training in a certain Christology. But I have no idea how you explain all of this in that Christology. You skip over it. You just skip over it. Because you you got to look at something and say, well, he had a decision to make. All right, now that makes sense. He made a decision over and over again to submit. He made a decision over and over again to obey. He had a different idea about something. He still submitted that idea and he obeyed. He didn't want to do something. Right, he submitted his will to the Father's will and he still obeyed. He gave attendance to what the Father had for him and he came into compliance with what the Father's will was for his life. But that's his decision. And the only way that decision could be made is, is, is for an individual who is not connected into that will by nature to have to fight with a will that's inside of them and, and to subdue that will that's inside of them to bring it in compliance with the will of another. You've got a will inside of you. We all do. That's how we were created. And that's how Jesus, he showed us what that looks like in human form. And that will has to be brought into compliance with the will of another. That's hard for a lot of us. We kind of fight against that. We kind of chafe on that one. Because we just want to do what we want to do. That's the way people are. They just want to do what they want to do. Even if it's going to destroy them, they still want to do what they want to do. How you know that? You watch people destroy their own lives. That's how you know that. That's just a fact. And people will continue to destroy their own life. Why? Because they're just proving they can do whatever they want to do. Yeah. Okay, you proved it. Please stop destroying your own life. Stop. I believe you. You can do whatever you want to do. You don't have to prove that anymore. And... And I've just been around so many people. It's like they they grew up in a household, or they grew up with a parent, or they grew up with somebody that that they they weren't allowed to just do what they want to do, and so they spend their whole adult life proving they can do it, whatever they want, even to their own destruction, even to their own detriment, destruction, and in their own demise, they're going to do that. When you really don't need to prove that. That's how you were created. We were all created that way. You don't have to prove to me. You don't have to prove to anybody. And I hope you don't need to prove to yourself. You can do whatever you want to do. It's just not the best decision all the time. And so as we bring that will into compliance and submission to the Father's will, yeah, that's where we start entering into that area that Jesus lived in. And that is where Jesus lived. That's exactly where Jesus lives. And so, Jesus obeyed in a couple different ways. 
and and I want you to you can kind of see life this way. He obeyed in general, and so in general, the whole course of his life was moving in a certain direction toward that will of the Father for him. I mean, he was from the time he was a little kid, all the way to the time he was a grown man, he was moving in a certain direction, and and that was the will of the Father for him. Whatever that you know, you, you think about his ministry. I mean, 30 years he didn't do anything except for just live. And then after 30 years, he's like, all right, kick it in. We're going to do ministry. We're going to preach the kingdom. We're going to preach the good news, preach the gospel. We're going to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper. We're going to cast out demons. All these things that he's going to do, he did. That was the trajectory of the will of the Father for him. So he's following after that. But everything in the general course of his life was leading to the cross and leading to the resurrection. That's where he was going. And so his life was in obedience. The course of his life was in obedience to that. So that's in general. But then very specifically, there was a a particular obedience to the Father's will. There was a particular compliance to what the Father had for him right now in a moment. And and I think sometimes we 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 get one part of it but we don't really get the other. Now we might get hyper focused on just doing the particular thing right this second that the Father has for us, but we're kinda of lost in the weeds, you know, of what the bigger picture is and what the direction of our life is going. And there really needs to be both. There needs to be an obedience to let's set the course of our life and let's begin to move into and begin to go in that general direction of what the Father has for me. All right, good. That's that general obedience. All right, but then along the way, there's going to be particular things that we're going to be spoke that are going to be spoken over us that we need to submit to and to come into compliance with in our life. You know, I think about some of the people that I've worked with over the years, and it's like, all right, well, there's things in their life that need to change. I see that, but they're moving in the general direction that the Father has for them. So they're kind of going down that road. All right, awesome. While we're going down that road, though, there's things that are going to need to change. And what we need to be is patient enough to allow for that process to take place in one another's life. Because you know what? Jesus is going to change things the way he wants to change them when he wants to change them. And he's going to bring things up in our life that are going to need to change when it's that time for it to change. He doesn't bring everything up in our life that needs to change all at once. It'd be overwhelming. You give up on that right away. So we need to set the course first. Set your course. Start down the road. You can't wait for everything to be perfect to start down the road. That's backwards. Right? That's what I was talking about. You get nitpicky about little things going on in your life. Well, I'm not ready. i got to do this, 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 this. You get lost in the weeds, and you're not really on course to what the Father has for you. So you set the general course first. You start heading in the direction, and along the way, you're bringing things, your will, you're bringing your decisions, you're bringing what you're seeing, what you're thinking into compliance with what the Father has as He brings stuff up. He knows what needs to change. And it's probably not what you think needs to change right now. But you've got to bring that into compliance with Him. And, and you may be looking at somebody else's life, saying, well, they need to change this, this, and this. That's annoying. Well, you're probably right. It is annoying. But that may not be what the Father is working on with them and what the Father is drawing them into and bringing them into compliance with. They, they haven't been brought to that place of decision for that. 
I don't know. And so we can't really look at that and say, well, that needs to change. I don't know what needs to change. You know, I've had a couple people time and say, well, thanks for, you know, putting yourself at risk, you know, letting people just be who they are and stuff. Well, what choice do I have? I don't really have any choice in that. It's like, all right, well, you're telling me that this is the general course. I'm called to do A, B, or C. All right, well, let's get you on the path toward that. All right, now, you're, you're a flaming jerk about like eight things in your life that everybody else can see, but you can't see it yet. All right, so we're just waiting on God to, to have that begin to change and begin to, to, to work out. All right, right, yeah. So... Uh, there's no compliment coming toward me on that. It's like, yeah, I can't make something happen. I can't make something change. I can't bring up something that I don't know that the Father's even brought up or even cares about right now. There's bigger fish to fry in people than what I can see. And so I have to trust that the Father knows what He's doing and bringing things into compliance along the way that He cares about. And so it's up to us to put ourselves in a predisposition, and I mean it, a predisposition to make a decision toward Him, what He wants, and to bring our will into compliance to His. But you need to be predisposed to do that. And there are going to be those moments, those moments where you know, or where you think, or where it may just happen, where you bring your will into compliance to His, and then you suffer. You can't just assume that that wasn't the Father's will, because you suffer. Maybe that's exactly what the Father has. Because, I mean, think about the cross, biggest decision ever made. I'm going to bring myself into compliance with the cross, what Jesus said, and He suffered immediately. Was that a bad decision? No, that was the perfect decision. Was that something he shouldn't have done? No, that was exactly what he was supposed to do. Oh, so you mean suffering? Suffering is positive? I'm saying, yeah. That's what I'm saying. And that's what I've been trying to say. Because it's through that Jesus learned obedience by experiencing, experiencing life, including suffering. And there's a word that's used there and, and the idea behind learning things that way. It's the same idea as like one a person learns the taste of meat by eating it. Like you, you eat certain kinds of meat. Why do you know like if you eat meat? How do you what do you know how do you know what lamb tastes like? It's gross. Well, because you've had it before. How do you know what chicken tastes like? Because it tastes like everything. No, because you've had it. How do you know what bacon tastes like? Because you've had it if you've had bacon or steak or whatever it is. You learn the taste of it. How? By eating it or smelling it or being around it. And that's the same picture word that's being used here of Jesus learning obedience by experiencing life. He tastes it. He smells it. He's in it. And so the Son, and this is back to the main point I started with, the Son had to learn obedience through suffering. And so don't just skip that over that. Don't let that just be figurative language to you. 
Don't let that just be, oh, well, what he really meant to say is, well, he said what he meant to say. Let it make sense to you. Let that make a simple sense to you. That, that that's what it says. And so you go back to, well, why do you need to learn through experience? Well, because that's how humans are taught. Right. Right. And let's begin to reshape a Christology. Let's begin to reshape an understanding of Jesus based on an experiential and scriptural reality of Jesus that we see being revealed. Because that's what this is. This is one thing. There's more. This is one area that you see that. But there's more. And, and every time I go to explain this, I have to go and, and just start quoting verses. You know how I know all those verses? Because I've done it so many times. Because we, we are brought up in such a way of seeing things that, that most people that aren't believers can't understand it. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense. That's why. Something needs to make sense about this. And, and a Jesus that is a real example to us makes sense to me. A Jesus that makes choices to submit His own will to the Father's will, that makes sense to me. A Jesus that is willing to, to bring His decision, whatever that is, even if He disagrees with what He sees, He doesn't like what He sees, He will still submit that, He'll still bring that into compliance to the Father's will. That makes sense to me. Because that tells me who I want to be. That tells me who I'm becoming. And so I want to encourage you with that. Uh, when we, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the Incarnation, we're celebrating that transition. And the Word became flesh. That's a transition. The word there, become, is the Greek word for metamorphosis. Is that He became. He transitioned into flesh. And that's what we're celebrating. I know... It's little baby Jesus, eight pounds, six ounce, you know, and golden fleece manger, baby Jesus, whatever you want to think of at Christmas. But it's really a, a significant transition that we need to look at and say this is literally the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, the firstborn of us and who we're becoming. And I look at something like that and I don't know any other significant, any more significant thing that's ever happened in history. But it's our opportunity and it's our call and it's our example and it's our hope. It's all those things. It's what we're going to celebrate. We're about to celebrate. And so I hope that we can take our celebration maybe a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper as to how this really affects my life and affects the people around me and, and affects what's going on in the world. But there's something really significant about a hope for real, lasting, and powerful change in us. And that's what we see in Jesus. It's real. Not only just a possibility, 
It's there for the taking. I'm going to ask you to just take a moment and respond to that. Uh, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Because that same call is, is on you toward change. That, that, that same call toward your will. You have a will, man. It's, it's in you. It's strong. We've been living in that will for our whole lives. And it can be changed, though, because we learn how to live in society and we learn how to interact with family and we learn how to do a lot of things. We learn how to act in school. We learn how to you know, stand in line. We learn how to do a lot of things that aren't natural human tendencies. And our will can be brought into submission, into compliance with things that are around us. We know that that can happen because it's been done already. None of us are wild people just doing whatever we feel like all the time. So our will can be brought into compliance. And, and so I, I just want to take a moment and I want to pray just the Holy Spirit focus over your life to bring your will into compliance with what Jesus has for you. Yeah, just uh, just allow for that. Participate in that. Take hold of that. You are the master of that will that that you can submit that will wherever you want. You can bring that will into compliance wherever you want. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to prove anything to me or anybody else. You have a will and it's yours. You're the master of that. So what I'm calling you toward though and what I'm encouraging you toward though is to take that will and bring it into compliance with the Father's purposes, the Father's plan, the, the Father's will for your life. To find a rest in that, to find a peace in that, and to find a purpose in that. Not wandering around, not just going you know, to this, to that, or whatever it is, but really finding a purpose in the Father's will by bringing your will into compliance with His. Thanks, God. Thanks, God. Thanks, God. That's between you and Him. And that's the basic thing I really want to tell you today. That's the basic thing I really want to call you to today. Because the Son, the Son learned obedience. He learned obedience through suffering, through living His life. You know? Yeah. We've lived enough to learn what it is to bring our will into compliance with the Father. We've likely suffered enough that we know that it's worth it to bring our will into compliance with the Father. Yes. Yeah. Suffering is from my Father. Why? For my good. Let it be for your good right here and right now. Make your decisions. Make your choices. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hmm. 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 Hmm.
Thanks, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, I just say thanks for loving us. Thanks for having the best for us. Thanks for knowing the best for us even when we can't see it and we can't understand it. I thank you you still have the best for us. I pray that in, in trust and in faith we find ourselves in the middle of what you have. No matter how it looks, what we think about it, I want to be in the center of what you have for me. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for His example. Jesus, we thank You for the life You lived and the example that You gave us. You give us. Thanks. Thanks. We worship You, God. Give You honor and praise tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Speak by saying, Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Good to see you tonight. We'll see you again. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool. You mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the comunidad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah.